Hey everyone, this is Hamilton, producer of Making the Argument. While Nick is in one of his busiest weeks of session, I wanted to share with you one of the best interviews he's ever done on the Dad Works podcast, which helps dads become elite family leaders by becoming harder to kill, easier to love, and equipped to lead. In this interview, we got to explore a side of Nick that often isn't given the opportunity to arise on the MTA podcast. I love this interview because it covered a few things. The role of fathers in protecting against cultural predators, strength and emotional intelligence in fatherhood, the role of faith in strengthening leadership, the crisis of modern masculinity, and building a multi-generational impact as a father. Now, if you'd like to hear more of the Dad Works podcast, I've left a link to Kurt's YouTube channel in the description below. Thanks again for tuning in to Making the Argument, brought to you by Good Ranchers, and let's get right into this interview between Nick and the Dad Works podcast. Easy. I don't like this situation. I, I don't like where we found ourselves. But what are we going to do about it? I mean, if you just want to sit and complain about it, you're you're essentially becoming the sort of man that they want you to become—the isolated incel that sits on their room complaining on Twitter that girls are mean to them. All right, Dad's back for another episode, and I'm extremely excited today. Because, man, I have just been going through all of your Instagram content, your YouTube content, and you're like probably my favorite guy right now in terms of putting out things. And I just got to say, I love the fact that you still live in a country that can elect you because here in Canada, there'd be no way. And so I'm extremely <laughs> excited to have you on. Thank you for coming on. Pier, and, Pier's uh, pretty good, man, right? How, how, what's that? Pier's pretty good, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming on, man, and I really appreciate this. And you, can you just give us a quick background in terms of how long you've been married, how many kids have you got, and then I'm going to jump into a couple of questions on that kind of thing. Sure, sure. Well, I, I got married in uh, 1999 to my high school sweetheart. We've been married you know, 24 years now. Um, I was 19. She was 20 at the time. I like to remind her that she married a teenager. Um, <laughs> shortly after that, went into the military, uh, you know, served there, and uh, now we live in Virginia with our three children, ages 20, uh, 17, and 15. So my oldest is a, uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, my son, and then my youngest daughter. Amazing. Excellent. Okay. So the, the thing that I found you most recently with, and honestly, I got probably a ton of followers from a comment that I made on one of your reels and it was about predators basically. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know what? The comment that I made got more likes than some of my own posts. So you have a huge reach and I'm really grateful for that because the content you're talking about is so important for dads and not a lot of guys are willing to take the stand that you're willing to take. And I think that's tragic. Because if we're not willing as fathers to stand up for our children, especially with what we see going on right now, because you know the world's virtue signaling mm -hmm. and we're not allowed to say certain things about certain people, I think that's a huge uh, detriment to us standing up for our children. So I'm curious, uh, in terms of like strong fatherhood in a soft world, what do you consider to be fatherhood? Let's just take it like 30,000 foot. What are our roles as a father from what you've experienced, what you've seen that we can do in such a soft world that's putting us down, that's making masculinity toxic, all that kind of stuff. Let's just get a real broad perspective of what you think your role is as a father, especially in today's world. Sure, I, I think obviously fatherhood starts off with how you treat your, your wife and the mother of your children. It's one of the earliest signals that gets sent to your children on what their own expectations should be, whether it's your son, whether it's your daughter. They are both learning things about what a healthy relationship looks like, uh, what healthy parenting looks like, what a healthy marriage looks like. So that's first and foremost. Um, also, good marriages tend to lead to children. <laughs> so what, once you have... Um, 
I do believe that there's there's similar obligations. Your job as a father is to, I, I believe, to be a, a spiritual head within your household. I think it's also to protect. It's to provide. Um, it, it's to assist with with nurturing. Um, it, it's also about I think understanding that you have different obligations to your daughters versus your sons. Um, now there's there's certain things that are universal across the board, um, but there there are various things that you need to do and, and kind of understand about the distinct nature between raising a daughter and raising a son. Um, I, I think one of the the most important roles uh, for a father and attributes uh, for a father is that you are um, you are the safe harbor in the storm, and that doesn't start by simply you know, being there when something bad happens, that actually starts long before you ever get to that situation. It's the sort of thing where you have demonstrated both um, love, you've demonstrated compassion, but you've, de you've demonstrated strength and an ability to bring order to chaos. And what ends up happening is I, I think it's important. A lot of times we talk about men are not, you know, as emotionally in tune as they need to be. Okay, fine, whatever. I think there's a certain degree. I don't want to be flippant about that. It's not that we shouldn't develop those capabilities, but one of the reasons why men so focus so much on the strength, on, on maybe more of those stoic principles and whatnot is because we're not allowed to fail when things get bad. And that means we have to adequately prepare ourselves spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, physically to be able to deal with a whole host of potential problems that might come our way that might adversely affect our family. And they need to feel secure and comfortable in the fact that our, our dad can handle it. Because if, if you can first demonstrate, you can first lay that groundwork that you are competent and capable of, of being that, that safe harbor in the storm. It affects a number of other things outside of that event ever taking place, right? When, when, you're, when your child needs to talk to you about something, and this is, this is where the, the tenderness and the compassion comes in, right? You're, you're, you're first establishing that you're strong, you're capable, and that you're there to protect them. And then the next thing that you're, you're developing, kind of, kind of in tandem, is a, a certain tenderness uh, for your, your children, for your spouse, that they get to see that maybe the rest of the world doesn't. Right. That's that's not to say that you shouldn't be able to demonstrate compassion outside of your family. I think you should. But there's there's a certain tenderness that that belongs to them. And when they can feel secure in that and they know that when they have to come to you with either good news or with bad news, you're a safe person to come to because you're going to give sound advice. You're going to stand by the truth, but you're going to do it in love. Um, I think that's critical. So that that's a lot. That's a lot for for fathers to have to try to accomplish and master. Um, but I think the, the harder that we work toward achieving that, that, that spiritual, emotional, physical, um, you know, professional competence, uh, we, we end up being the sort of husbands, we end up being the sort of fathers that um, their, their wives love and admire and that their children look up to and either aspire to be like, or maybe in the case of your daughter, aspire to find um, a, a husband which shares those sorts of attributes that she grew up with that made her feel safe, love, and respected. Man, and that is such a wonderfully succinct way to put it. And at, at some point, I'm going like, yes, obviously. And that's not obvious anymore. And I'm curious <laughs> yeah. what you think is going on because that's not obvious. That's not what I learned. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn very much. I mean, a lot of us grew up without fathers who were leading us in that. And I had to learn this the hard way that, you know, personally almost cost me everything. But why is this so hard these days? Is it a cultural thing? Is it a lack of fathers? Is it 
something else? Like, what do you see being the problem that is getting the, in the way of what should be so obvious for men? I, I mean, I, I think that is a very complex question. If I wanted to try to simplify it, I would say that I think what you said before about we have more and more people within society growing up without strong fathers in the household, or without any father at all, period. And then we have a lot of other fathers that seem to be confused about what their proper role is within society. And I think a lot of that does have to do with culture. Um, I, I think that when we abandon certain norms, like so for, for me, my Christian faith is very important to me. It provides a blueprint for what my responsibilities are as a husband and a father. Now, you know, that obviously there's things that aren't specifically addressed, maybe like scripturally or whatnot, but it can be inferred based off of what my baseline responsibilities are. Um, but I think we have more and more men that are either growing up with without those sorts of convictions. Well, okay, if you're not going to get the conviction there, where are you going to get it from? And, and, and culture on a whole, Western culture specifically, right? This is, this is not the same problem that it is in other parts of the world. It really is the West struggling with this idea of, of what does good masculinity look like. And we're, we're struggling with this at the same time that we're becoming increasingly secular as a culture overall, at the same time that we've lost uh, track of what actually constitutes. And the reason why I bring up the secularism is because what constitutes objective morality or objective truth in such an environment? And if you don't have something you can point to and you can say, no, that's true. No, I know objectively that is true. Not because I feel like it. It's not my truth. It's not your truth. No, that's true. Right? That, that's a compass point in order, in order to work. When you give that up, what do you replace it with? You replace it with preference. You replace it with popularity. And one of the roles that men are supposed to play within society is that we are supposed to be seeking out and protecting and defending truth despite whether or not it becomes unpopular. Mm -hmm. One of the problems that you see with, with it, within a society that is struggling with all this identity crisis is I think because when you have so many fathers that are either not in the home um, or they are in the home, but they, they, they don't play a leadership role with respect to their family, with respect to their children, your kids are now looking, again, they're looking for that harbor in the storm. Life's going to throw a lot of curveballs at you. They, they are sitting there looking for instruction, and they will glean what they can through observation. But if you're not providing instruction, that doesn't mean nobody is. It's just exactly. it's going to be somebody that probably doesn't care about your kids as much as you do. And I think a lot of men right now are, are forced into this cultural situation where it's, well, no, it's, it's our time to just kind of sit back because, after all, we're responsible for most of the world's problems throughout history. And, uh, you know, my gosh, we've just filmed, and I just I feel so bad about Shut up. Are okay. men responsible for a lot of problems throughout history? Yes. But men are also responsible for a lot of the solutions throughout history. And so maybe what we learn from this is not man bad. Maybe what we learn is masculinity, just like femininity, has certain attributes associated with it. Now, the attributes commonly associated with things like masculinity have to do with things like competitiveness, aggression, a capacity for violence. Those things have negative outworkings and they have positive outworkings. So the attributes exist. They can be used for good. They can be used for evil. The question is, what are you using them for? What are you developing and what are you using them for? And then what are you teaching other people with respect to how they should be used? And so I, I think some of this, I, I just, so much of it, I just want to look at men and be like, dude, just snap out of it. Right? You don't, you don't, I'm sorry, look at all of human history. You don't have to put up with this narrative that you're supposed to sit over in the, in the corner you know, just paying penance for things that you might not have ever done. You are supposed to stand up and lead. 
If you don't feel confident in that, well, then work on improving yourself so you can feel confident for it. It's, it's perfectly reasonable for a man that isn't displaying the positive attributes associated with masculinity to feel like something is wrong because guess what? It is. But what you don't get to do is then look at everything else in the world and be like, well, I guess my job is to just sit here. No, it isn't. You, you not only have the responsibility, you, you actually have the privilege of, of assuming your proper role within your family, within society. But it is going to require you to, to develop those skill sets those capabilities, those capacities, and then point them towards something which is actually positive and true and, and noble, and then go out there and willing to fight for it. And, and when, when societies are comprised of men that are willing to do that, um, they tend to flourish uh, along with other criteria. But when, when they tend to do that, they flourish. And when they don't, uh, everybody suffers as a result. Yeah, man, I really like what you say about that. And there's so many points that all wrapped together. And I think a lot of this wraps together with what you said about faith and having something that is true because you get this idea about the fear of man rather than the fear of God. And that's what leads men, I think, to go, well, I just want to sit back. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to be canceled. I don't want to be, you know, whatever the, the buzzword of the day is. And guys are just so weak. And that's so frustrating to me. But I think it also goes into like why the West seemingly is under attack because at least for me, and I'm wondering if you thought about this, and this is the bastion of truth and these days the bastion of, of God in, in many respects that, that built up this North American, this Western culture. And it seems to me no surprise that this is the thing under attack. You don't see this happening in cultures that, you know, might have different religious beliefs and all that kind of stuff because it doesn't seem like that's where truth actually is. And I wonder if you see the, the cultural war on the West as being perhaps an attack on truth itself when it comes to Christianity and other things like that. Is that something that's come across your radar? I, I think it's interesting that in the West, um, there, there's typically only one um, religious belief you are not only permitted to, but encouraged to insult, demean, malign, slander, and that is Christianity. Yeah. You really don't see that as much with, with other religious faiths within the United States. Um, the other thing that I think is going on here, and this is the part where, you know, again, sometimes when I talk about this, people will will try to turn it into something uh, almost conspiratorial, which I think is kind of absurd. But when when you when you look at when you look at another Western theory, right, Marxism, Marxism had this this vision for society, which was based off of certain criteria that is very appealing. To Western, to Western society in general. One of them is this notion of egalitarianism, right? It's this idea that we're, we're all equal and we all have a certain amount of equal value and whatnot. Um, Mar Marx looked at that as primarily like an ec economic framework. And he certainly tried to remove God from it. He was very, very hostile toward religion in general, but Christianity specifically. And so it was this idea of, well, how do, how do we create this egalitarian society? So you, you, and, and part of it was because he was identifying certain problems within society as it currently existed, which is, is perfectly fair, right? Perfectly fair to have, a, have an honest critique about something. But the overall solution he came up with is that, that people are generally defined by their economic class. And the only way they're going to be able to throw off their chains is for the workers of the world to unite and for us to embrace a system where we adopt this axiom of from each according to their ability and to each according to their needs. And, and, and all that sounded very, very nice until they started attempting to implement it. And then what they found was, is okay, this, this seems to run completely contrary to human nature in general. And not just the bad parts of human nature, but just human nature. 
uh, we like the idea of being able to understand you know what we own and to be able to work for something and be able to keep it and to be able to you know we we feel we we may like society in general but we feel stronger about our own families than we do about necessarily the family next door even if we still care about them and Marx really looked at this as as a problem uh, and he he talks about developing the new socialist man right. And, and again, I'm not trying to get overly political. I'm just trying to, to, to draw a philosophical line between one theory and one worldview of how things should exist versus a different one. And, and what you saw over time is you, you saw versions of this with critical theory in the Frankfurt School and Herbert Marcuse, and you saw um, postmodernism and with you know Foucault and Jean-Paul Sartre with existentialism and Derrida with deconstructionism. And, and there's a common theme that kind of ran through all of this, and it was this idea of assigning purpose and assigning assigning ultimate purpose, meaning, and truth to an individual's identity and then ultimately how they responded with the collective. I know this is a really wonkishy kind of explanation. But, it, but if you look at the logical outworking of that theory, a lot of the traditional aspects of, of what we've kind of believed in the West that like loosely – there is a God. There is such a thing as an objective moral order. Uh, there is such a thing as a, a kind of an ordered universe, which allows us to utilize things like logic, deduction, induction, the scientific method. This allows us to be able to, um, you know, engage in freedom of inquiry, where we're, we're allowed to challenge things, we're allowed to question things, and we have a certain expectation that we're going to be able to come back with a reasonable response in order to arrive at conclusions that we can all use to improve our lives. One of the things that was established kind of early on, and uh, there, there was a, a, a thinker named uh, Gramsci who was um, imprisoned by, by Mussolini, and he, he started to say that, well, look, the economic theory of Marxism isn't working. And what we really need is to replace kind of the, the, the norms that we see within society, which, of course, are rooted in these, you know, hierarchies and, and oppressor versus oppressed. And we have to replace that with something else. So we got to replace that worldview with something else. But you don't just do that by making a political theory. You don't just do that by making a, an economic theory. You, you do that by creating a completely different worldview. Mm-hmm. And over the last several decades, we're, we're now seeing things that used to just be kind of in the sociology or poli-sci departments uh, or English departments in some cases within the university system, moving into popular culture in a way that we've never recognized before. And, I, and so all of that to say, here's what I think it comes down to. We are, we are now entering into a world that in many respects is post-Christian, which is to say that the Christianity no longer plays the same dominant role within culture that it used to, as far as mitigating the way that we think about ourselves, the way we think about other peoples, the way we think about our responsibility to our families, to society in general, to God. That's being replaced with a whole new structure, a whole new way to think about society, politics, economics, family. And, and it is, by definition, hostile to the way that Western civilization has largely been built. Because you're, you're not going to replace the current system unless you have an alternative system that you can push people to. And that alternative system sees a much different role uh, for men. It sees a much different role. It, 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 is, it, it tends to be more hostile toward the traditional nuclear family. It tends to be hostile toward the idea of meritocracy. It tends to be hostile to the idea of individual liberties and freedoms uh, and replacing those with collective uh, liberties, which I don't really think exist, but be that as it may. And, and ultimately, it's replaced 
God or, or this sense of uh, objective moral values with kind of this, this theory of identity combined with politics. Um, so, so what is true? What is good? What is noble? Well, it's, it's those things which overturn the oppressor in favor of the oppressed. And using political processes in order to arrive at that is, is the preferred mechanism for achieving it. Um, so the reason why I go through the trouble of explaining all of that, or, or at least giving you my explanation um, of all that, is because I, don't, I think if we don't properly understand that this didn't start yesterday, uh, this, is, this is not just, because if you haven't been paying attention, this looks like, this looks nuts. You know, five years ago, nobody was taking their kids to drag shows. That, that was not a thing. Right. I didn't care where you were on the political spectrum. That just wasn't a thing. Five years ago, we were not arguing about books containing openly pornographic images being in our kids' you know, schools. That was not a thing. And now it is. Um, and, and, you know, toxic masculinity wasn't a thing. To, to define masculinity, you know, more, as broadly as it currently does. And now it is. And, and again, I would, I would just make the larger, larger argument that this is, this is all philosophically connected because certain people believe that the traditional way that the West would, would, was kind of developed with ju certain Judeo-Christian values, certain with, um, you know, kind of presuppositions about logic and, and science and the role of men and women within society, they see that as bad and it has to be replaced and we're starting to see in, in a far more practical and everyday sense what it's going to be replaced with. And so men are going to have to look at this and decide, well, is that what you want? Do, do you agree with this? Um, I personally don't. And so I, I see my job as not only to protect and, and provide for my family and to, and to raise my children in the way that I think is appropriate, but also take that additional step to make the argument for why no you know, for, for all the flaws that we see with, with respect to, you know, the U.S. history or the history of the West in general, there are certain precepts, notions, and ideas which are, are true and noble and, I believe, beautiful and worth fighting for. And one of the things that I think has been ripped away from men is this idea that everything that we thought was worth fighting for at one point, we're now being told is bad and evil and we need to turn from it. And if you want to create a generation of men that just feel absolutely lost, rob them of their history and purpose at the same time. So that's where I think it's incumbent upon all of us um, to stand up for those things, to, to fully acknowledge where things have gone wrong and, and where we have done things you know, inappropriately or where um, men can improve, but by no means to, to give up the, the fundamental premise upon which I think our society has been built. Speaking of which, you know what makes everything better? Free bacon. That's right. Good Ranchers right now is offering free bacon with their subscription. Here's what that means. That means when you go to GoodRanchers.com and you put in promo code Nick and you sign up for one of the subscriptions so you can get the excellent meat products that they provide you, not only will they give you the meat products you ordered, they're going to give you another meat product for free that you will use to wrap all of the other meat products, right? But if you just go willy-nilly over to the site and you decide, oh, I'm going to look for this offer, you're not going to find it because you got to do promo code Nick. It's for my listeners. That's you. That's you. It's exclusive for you. GoodRanchers.com, promo code Nick. Sign up for one of the subscriptions. And with each order that comes in on that subscription, you're going to get a pound and a half of free bacon. People, it just, it just doesn't get better, right? Plus free shipping. So GoodRanchers.com, promo code Nick. Go get your free bacon. Go do it right now. But again, you don't use the promo code, no bacon for you. All right, let's get back to it. 
Yeah, th- thank you for that. And I think that is so good to hear that it's not just, oh, I stopped paying attention for a couple of years and, you know, something that was a totally normal thing to do in 1999. Now I'm a racist, homophobic, whatever. And then I don't know what to do with my identity at this point. Um, I'm curious from all of that, I can only imagine guys are like, oh, well, now what then? Like, if this is just going on for decades, how do you not be a doomer? Yeah. And how do you do something about it? Like, I've, I've got some ideas that I'm trying to do, but I mean, you're in the forefront of this. What are you telling men to do about this so that they don't just like pack it in even more? Sure. We, we have this conversation a lot on our on our podcast. Um, and, and one of the things I, I really focus on men whenever they start to go down this path of like kind of the doom and gloom thing is... By all means, be frustrated, be angry, be upset about what's going on, um, but tough. I, seriously, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I've, I've gotten in trouble with this with men before with like, well, it's, it's easy and, you know, for you to just go out and flippantly say this. Like, no, it isn't easy. I don't like this situation. I, I don't like where we found ourselves. But what are we going to do about it? I mean, if you just want to sit and complain about it, then, then you're, you're essentially becoming the sort of man that they want you to become. Yeah. The, 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 the isolated incel that sits on their room complaining on Twitter that girls are mean to them. Like, I'm sorry, there, there's, there's only one way out of this. When you, when you look at that cycle of you know, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times, hard times make strong men. Guys, I got news for you. We're going into that hard times piece. Yep. Right? Do you, do you want to be weak right now or do you want to be strong? I... I, I, I <laughs> I, I described it this way once. Um, if you are familiar with, with scripture, um, and, and you know the story kind of of, of David and Solomon, there, there's this really interesting point where where David is is talking to God and he wants to build the temple. He has these plans to build the temple, and he's he's talking to the prophet and he's saying, "Yeah, this is what I'm going to do." The prophet says, "God is with you. Go go forth and do it." And then God speaks to the prophet, comes back to David and says, no, 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 you're not going to build the temple. Your son is. I think all of us want to live in that era of Solomon. There's peace, there's prosperity. Things are going incredibly well. You don't have a lot of conflict or violence. Um, It's almost like everybody had a clear sense, uh, you know, at least starting out, a clear kind of sense of identity. They were good times, right? At least initially. But those good times don't happen if David hadn't fought all the wars first. And so I think um, in many respects, we've seen what good times look like and we want to desperately hold on to them. Um, and I think it's about time we, we understand that more is going to be required of us. And rather than, than looking on that with some sort of um, kind of hopeless nostalgia, we need to start preparing ourselves that no, we get to be the strong men in the weak times that will build the good ones, but only if we're willing to. Right, yeah. this idea that it's a foregone conclusion that bad times will create strong men. No, no, no. That's what you hope will happen. That's what the men of those times chose to be. And so now we got a question to ask ourselves: Are we going to be those men? And I hope the answer is yes. But here's what I'll tell you. I don't care what anybody else's answer is. I already know what mine is. That's my choice. Nobody gets to take it from me. It's my choice. It's my responsibility. I choose to assume my responsibility within the times that I'm born and the times that I live. And more and more, I think that's what men need to understand. You can look at a number of things outside of your control, and you can be frustrated by it. 
Or you can focus on the things that you do control and you can do something about it. And I would suggest that's where you need to spend the vast majority of your time. Mm, man. Okay. Just rewind that a little bit, guys. Listen to that again, because this is absolutely exactly where we need to go with this. Because especially as a father, if you're looking at the world around you and you're not going, what? <laughs> like, I can't, I can't believe that I'm, I'm seeing what I'm actually seeing here. That should be all the motivation you need. And I love the fact that you brought the multi-generational David to Solomon and Audward into this. I was just having a discussion two days ago with our group. I was journaling on this in the morning because I noticed something about myself and that I was still operating with ego where I wanted to build the temple. And I've got three sons. And I noticed in that moment that I thought that if I could build the temple, my legacy would be secure. Not realizing consciously, like I know this stuff, but not realizing consciously that I would have the legacy that I wished if I set my children up to have a greater kingdom than me. And that was very challenging to my ego because it becomes multi-generational, becomes about starting the thing that I don't get to see end. And I think with materialism and everything coming for short-term wins, for dings on Instagram, for you know the, the Uber Eats that can show up in 10 minutes, men have become so casual and so addicted to this immediacy of gratification. And that's not what that's not what life is about. That's not what manhood is about. That's not what any of these things are about. As a leader, I mean, I, I was just really struck the other day about exactly what you're saying is, if my son, especially my oldest for me, if he's not ready to take the crown from me without regicide, I will have failed. And man, that just cut to my core. Um, are, are these things that you're also thinking about with raising your son? I think you've got two daughters and a son, you said. Yeah. I'm curious how that wraps up because as I'm thinking about my oldest, he's the one that I've had to work the most on my relationship because I was rubbish. I was a terrible dad and husband for so many years and he suffered because of that. And it's it's different, I think, for my other sons because they're going to be kings in their own right of their own realms. But now I'm struggling with, okay, I want my oldest to take my kingdom, but I also want, as a father, it's not like an actual kingdom. So yeah. how do my middle son and my youngest son do that? What are you thinking about in terms of that multi-generational role for you setting this up for your kids so that they can come in and like do more and build on your foundation? And maybe there's nothing else that needs to be said. It's just get to work, guys. But is there any last sort of thoughts you have on this? I, there's a couple things. Um, one of the things they never tell you when you become a father of a son is that what you're doing is training your replacement. You're training your replacement for kind of the family in general, for society in general. That's what you're doing. And I, I will say this. I had a great grandfather. Uh, my mom and dad split up when I was three years old, but my dad really, really fought to be a good part of my life. And my mother really encouraged it. So I, as, as divorces go, it was about the best you could ask for from, from a, a child's perspective. And I, I remember we've, we've actually got a, a video going out on this uh, this weekend. But one of the stories I talk about that is I remember sitting in, in my grandfather's den when I was young and um, him telling the story about uh, when he was 16, he threatened my great-grandfather, his father, that if he didn't sign him down or if he didn't take him down to the recruiting office and sign him up for the Navy, he would run away, become a ward of the state, and then the government would allow him to join then because it was right after Pearl Harbor. And he was going to go off, 16-year-olds, he was going to go off and fight. I remember hearing about that when I was very, very, very young. And then another incident that, that struck me um, 
was I remember going to my, my father's retirement from the LAPD. He was a homicide detective. And it was the first time anyone could remember a family of victims showing up in order to present him with something as a, as a um, signifying their gratitude. Um, and, and, and these, these were, these were formative, formative points in my life from being, you know, pretty young to being a little bit older and, and whatnot. And, uh, and I also remember the first time I got to sit down with my grandfather and my father after I had returned from my first combat tour in Iraq as a Green Beret. And it, it was as if I was, I was now sitting um, among them, not under them. And they were happy that I was in that place. I had my own, um, my own challenges, my own triumphs, my own defeats. And I was able to sit there with two other men that I admired and, and share my stories and add them to the collection of our family stories. And I remember thinking about that as one day I want to be sitting there as a grandfather with my son and my grandson listening to them share those same stories, watching my son raise his son, watching my grandson achieve um, the right to be able to sit amongst us with his, with his own stories. And when you start to look at it from that perspective as, as a legacy, not just your own individual accomplishments, it, it adds an entirely new perspective, and I would argue motivation, to constantly improve and to work past some of the frustrations in order to achieve something that's, that's pretty incredible. And, and, I, and I would also say this, there's a lot of men out there that never had that initial experience. They didn't have the grandfather. They didn't have the father. Um, for them, they're not continuing a legacy. They're starting it. And I have to say there is something truly noble about the man who overcomes the problems associated with not having the father in, in their own lives but doing everything within their power to ensure that that will not, not be what their children experience. Those men get to build a legacy from scratch, and that is, that is an honor. As much as they shouldn't have to. They shouldn't have had to do it. But this is their chance to choose that they're going to do it. And, um, again, I think when we think about it in that legacy perspective, um, I think it speaks to something in, in all of us that encourages us to do, to do better um, to be better, to be honorable, to be noble, to be the, the sort of man that our sons want to be. Yeah. Yeah, man. And I just want to like, for the guys listening, the culture is so strong right now. You don't need to fight against the instincts that tell you what Nick just said was right. Like you, I think in a man's heart who's gone, either sat with his grandfather and his father or who hasn't, there is something in there that you can probably tell is right. And I want to tell you, man listening, that you don't have to crush that as being toxically masculine to show up in today's world. You instead ought be pointing towards what is right rather than what is expedient. But I think a couple of things that you just mentioned there, there's this idea of fault versus responsibility. If you're the man, because so many of the guys listening to the show I know um, are the type of man who are starting fresh. They're the ones who are building the first domino against whom everyone else is going to lean. That might not be your fault like Nick just said, but it is absolutely your responsibility to be that man for the other people because you will otherwise pass the same pain that you have down to your children. And for me, that's unacceptable. That's why I'm doing this for my family. 
Um, if you have not had that touch with a, a father, though, I recommend going back a couple episodes and listening to the Ed McGlasson, uh Blessing of a Father. God the Father can give that to you, just so you guys know. Um, man, okay, thank you for that. I appreciate that. One thing I want to touch on as well, though, is this identity piece. Because we've touched on identity a number of times. It's a huge political topic, so to speak. Now, I think it has to do at the sort of first glance with how a father shows up for his children. Because a child who knows a father's love is at least much more unlikely to question who they are. Is that how you see it as well? Do we have responsibilities, fathers, to stop our kids from having that identity crisis? No, that that's true. I mean, that's all I'll put it. Like, I don't just agree with that. I believe that is absolutely true. Um, here, here's what here's what I'll say. Like, I because I get my identity through Christ, right? And 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 again, I, I don't I don't know the composition or the theological composition of your audience, but I'll, I'll say this. I, and I say this all the time because we've had a lot of people listen that are that are not not Christians or not religious in general. And I always tell them, like, I'm going to tell you what I believe to be true because that's what I owe you. Um, because I get my identity in Christ, my identity is unassailable. It doesn't move with the culture. It doesn't move with the times. Like it, I can't imagine, it, it, as much as I am frustrated by some of the, the, the popular conceptions within um, culture that I think are just absurd, I, really what it is in some cases is heartbreaking because I can't imagine what it is to go through life having no real idea of who you are and constantly trying to find it in things that are, are either superficial um, or, or fleeting. It's this quest for, for pleasure or for status or for power or for what I don't worry about any of that. I don't worry about any of that. I know who I am. I know who I am. And now it's just a question of trying to develop the, the capabilities and the traits that I know are necessary in order for me to do a good job. Right. And, and by that, I mean, you know, treating my wife the way that she deserves to be treated, leading. And this is an important distinction right here. My job is not just to be there and be supportive and be loving. It's to lead. Bingo. To lead my family. And, and my wife, who is an incredibly strong woman, wants that. It, it's, it's not as if I, I went out and I looked for, like, who's the most subservient woman out here that I can, you know, potentially trick into marrying me so I can. No, no, no. That's not what this is. She has incredibly high expectations for me, my responsibilities and my ability to achieve them. But she also respects my role. I respect hers. That, that first relationship that you have sets the tone both for your marriage but also for your children. Then it's the whole idea of developing those capabilities to be able to protect and provide. And then when you start to have children, to be able to, to, be able to nurture and to teach and to demonstrate. Right? And, and then the, the, final, the final test here is when I, when, I, when I stand before my creator one day, I, just, I want to hear good and well done, good and faithful servant. I, I had this interesting, I'm, I'm in the state legislature here in Virginia. And um, I, I got asked to run for higher office at one point. And, and I remember I, I was talking to a, a, a pretty powerful United States senator uh, here, and I remember he asked me, he goes, Nick, what do you want your legacy to be in politics? What do you, what do you want to walk away um, and have it said that you, you did or you accomplished here? <laughs> I remember saying, Senator, I mean, with respect, I said, I really hope that when I leave here, I, I've done my job to make government so insignificant in the day-to-day -day lives of a free people that there'll be no need to remember me whatsoever. I want to be remembered by my wife. I want to be remembered by my children, my close friends, but most of all, I want to, <laughs> I want to live my life in such a way to where I can safely say I was more worried about what God would say when I arrived than what man would say when I was gone. And when I have stuck to that, 
I have never been disappointed in my decisions. And when I have allowed myself to stray from it, I have universally been frustrated with my decisions. So the, the, thing, that I, the thing that I would tell men in general is no matter where your starting point is, when, when you do have that identity, when you have that assurance with respect to truth, with respect to right and wrong, and, and you're, you're confident where it's at, not because it's necessarily popular, but because you genuinely believe it's true. That is empowering. It, it is a rock upon which everything else can be built. And then it, you don't, you're not responsible for changing all of the world's problems overnight. You are responsible for dealing with the issues first inside of you. And, and thank God Christianity provides a mechanism for that. And then it's about dealing with the it's about dealing with the problems you've been given. And and looking at those is like okay this is this is my mission right now. When people ask me now with respect to politics or you know when I was in the military when what's next it's like look my my job is to be obedient to my purpose in that moment. Yes, I've got to build for other things. Yes, I've got to anticipate certain things, but my job is to be obedient in that moment to what my purpose is and what my duties and responsibilities are. And and it has become very easy I think for people that even understand that, to look at it as a burden. Gosh, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to do those things. And I just, I don't know how else to word it. Like I, um, once all of a sudden you get the moral clarity on that, um, all the other struggles is as difficult as they might be, as painful as they can be at times. Um, when you know who you are, you, you can face them. And when you know who you are and you know who God is, you can face him. Uh, and, but right now I do see, I see a society that is struggling with that because they're trying to find identity in everything else and it isn't working for them and it isn't going to. But I will tell you this, the more men that stand up because they know who God is and they know who, are, who they are and they know what their responsibilities are, the more chaotic the world gets, the more people are going to look to the safe harbors in the storm. And when you represent that, the influence that you're going to have, the preparation you're doing now is going to lead to the influence that you will have maybe within your family, maybe within your community, maybe within your state, maybe within your country. Who knows? Be obedient to your purpose in the moment that it's given to you. And that's how you're going to get the sort of fundamental change that I think a lot of us want to see. But um, the bad news is it's probably not going to happen overnight. The good news is, is there is something you can do about it, and it starts by making a choice to do something about it instead of feeling as if you were just being battered around by the waves. So yep. make the choice. Yeah, bingo. Thank you. Now, I want to touch on family leadership in a second, but you said something there about making, uh, basically being disciplined enough to make the right choice in the identity rather than stray from that. Do you have discipline, spiritual disciplines, whatever that looks like, daily or weekly or whatever that looks like, in order to stay on the straight and narrow? What can you tell us about sort of habits or disciplines that you keep like that? Yeah, part, part of that is uh, prayer life, I think, is really important. I think um, constantly, constantly delving in and actually, uh, you know, reading scripture, reading um, from people. I, there, there's, this, uh, there's a verse in scripture that talks about iron sharp and iron with respect to surrounding yourself with other people that, that are, are moving toward the same objective. And allowing yourselves to, to do that, not necessarily in a competitive fashion, but, but within a, a cooperative fashion. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because there's, there's people within the secular environment picking up on these themes. Jordan Peterson is one of them that talks a lot about it and, and has said a lot of things that I, I really agree with, although I feel like it's, it's kind of untethered from the origin of it. Um, yeah. but it, but it is this idea of, of surrounding yourself with, with like-minded people that are moving towards similar goals where you guys actually relish in each other's success and you help each other through the struggles, but they've got to be, they've got to have a similar worldview and a similar ultimate goal. 
otherwise it becomes easy to be distracted. So that's that's one of them. It's it's the prayer, it's the scripture. These are individual components. It's the it's the regularly talking about things and ideas and concepts and where we're going um, with my wife. Um, my, my wife is my my closest confidant. There there that's just you know bar none. So that's the that's the so the individual component. Then there's the the immediate component with your wife, with your kids, wasn't it? And then there's the again finding that other people, those other men within your life with similar objectives, uh, where where you can you can confront from these struggles. You can also get accountability because that accountability piece is really important. Um, that accountability part is also really important because you're 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 you know again uh, praise God if you can always get it right, <laughs> um, and if you figure out how to do that, let me know. Um, but but having people that again uh, care about you, and and want uh, the best for you to be able to step in at those appropriate moments and be like, hey man, I think you're wrong here, and this is why. Uh, that's that's critical. So that's what I would do. I said, come up with individual goals, come up with those immediate family goals that are all part of that spiritual development and discipline, and then also come up with again that that small group, that small group of of men. Um, that can can help you, you can hold them accountable when necessary and they can hold you accountable and um and there's there's no feeling of there's no bad feelings or sense of competition with them because you know that you're all trying to go to the same place and you're helping each other get there amazing okay thank you for that and that touches actually really nicely into family leadership because i think this is what i've been working on without even knowing it since becoming a father and realizing how bad i was at it is that I needed to be the one where the buck stops and then lead. And that's what I'm trying to work with all the guys who follow us and work with us is how do you actually become that family leader? But I think it's got to start with leading yourself. And the things that you just said, these personal disciplines, that's where it's got to start. And having the intention and having the direction. I'm curious how you see family leadership because this is like, I don't know if it's just me, I'm in the wrong circles, but there's not a lot of talk about the leadership and maybe it's the culture. Maybe we're just not allowed to talk about this anymore. But when I say family leadership and you were just, you know, telling a young man, because that's how I think most guys, even, you know, my age and older feel sometimes without that leadership, what do you tell them? What does it mean to lead your family and how are you doing it? So, um, let me tell a quick story. I was on a plane once. I, I think I was about like 33, 34. I can't remember. Um, must've been 34. And I, I was on this plane and I was flying and, um, my light was working just fine. But this, this young woman sitting next to me, she had all these papers on and she was trying to read them and her light wasn't working. And so I said, Hey, would you, would you like to switch seats? So I said, so I'm just reading a book. You look like you got something important to do. So she switches seats with me and she goes, actually, I do. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm on my way to a job interview. And you know, this is kind of a big deal for us. I just got married and I, and I stopped her. And I said, Hey, I just want to tell you something. Um, I know culture sometimes kind of trashes on marriage whenever you watch sitcoms and things like that, but marriage is awesome. Marriage is incredible. Um, so I just want to encourage you. Congratulations. That's wonderful. And, you know, I, I just hope you guys, you know, have the same great experience I've had. And she goes, um, how long have you been married? And I said, 15 years. And she looks at me and she goes, she goes, you don't look that much older than me. I said, well, I'm not playing this game. So <laughs> you want to tell me your age? That's fine. She goes, I'm 29. I said, okay, I'm, I'm 35 or whatever it was at the time. Pretty close. And she goes, I said, I've been married since I was 19. And she goes, oh my gosh. She goes, how do you make it work? And I looked at her. I said, do you really want to know? <laughs> Keep in mind, I just met this person, right? She's like, I, I think so. I said, no, no, no. I said, I asked this because... It, we, we have been successfully married. I said, you, you need to understand when I say I've been married 15 years, that's 15 years of 11 different times we've moved. 
That's two combat tours. That's the first 10 years that I was married. I spent half of them away from home. That's uh, losing a child. Um, that, that's all the things. So I, I want you to understand that it, it hasn't just been you know, this, this easy road. I, I want you to know that when I share with you what made it work through all of this, um, that's why. And she goes, okay. And so she's listening. And I said, we have a biblical worldview of marriage. And she said, what does that mean? And you know, it, something struck me in that moment that there, there was something in the culture that had changed because I feel like if I had said that five years earlier, people would have said, oh, and maybe they would have liked it and maybe they, not, they would have not have liked it, but they would have known what it meant. And she didn't even know. And I said, well, I said, one of the things it means is that I, I have to be the leader of my household. And she stops me again. She goes, why does there have to be a leader? And I said, that's a great question. I said, when you got married, did you say from death to death do us part? She said, yeah. I said, did you mean it? She said, well, well, yeah. I said, okay. So what happens when you disagree? I mean, do you, do you take a vote? Oh, look, it's one to one again. Like, <laughs> what, what do you do when you have an impasse that, that you can't get beyond? What, what do you do in that moment? And she's like, I don't know. I said, we know in my household. I said, now I want you to understand something. In 15 years of marriage with everything I just described to you, there's only been three times, maybe, that my wife and I have come to a decision where we, we couldn't agree. We couldn't agree on the path forward, and I had to make the decision, and she had to submit to that decision. And she did so, not, not begrudgingly. She did so. And, and, I, and I will tell you this. She did it because the biblical version of, of the, the husband of the father leading the family is not the caricature that you see within popular culture. Yes, she has an obligation that when we cannot arrive at the same conclusion about something, she has to follow me, but I have to be worthy of that. It, it's not tyrannical. It's not my word goes. The moment I say something which violates scripture, she can always point to it and say, no, this is the standard by which your leadership has real authority. But in that situation where we can't point to something we don't know and, and it's uncertain, I have the obligation to make, make the decision. And what that means is, is that the moment I married her, her needs, well-being, all of that, her physical safety now supersedes my own, up to and including my life for hers. That's what it means. And she knows that I know that's what it means. So this is not just something about, this is not some sort of privileged position in the sense that now I, whatever I say goes and you just have to submit to it. There's still a standard by which my judgment can be judged. But she also knows that I make those decisions when they have to be made with her best interest in mind, with the best interest of my family in mind, even if it means my detriment. And over time, because we have developed confidence in this, not because I've always made the right decisions, but because we, we have matured and we've grown together. And, and she now feels confident when I make that decision, it really is because I believe it's what's best for her and our kids. She doesn't submit begrudgingly. And now we know, a pro we have a process. There's no such thing. There is no such thing in our marriage of a problem that we don't have a process for arriving at a solution that we are both going to then embark on together. I said, and, and again, in, in, 
the vast 15 years with everything I just described, there's only been three, maybe, maybe three cases where that's happened. Every other case we have sat down, we have prayed about together. We've thought about it together. We discussed it together. And we usually come up with, with either she was right or I was right, or there was some sort of compromise that we both agreed to, but we never have to worry about what's going to happen. If for some reason we don't agree, I will bear the burden of that responsibility. And I think that's what it means to biblically lead within your home is to, yes. Now, now here's the other thing I will tell you. And this was something that it did. It took a long time for me to truly embrace. I, there's a spiritual component to that leadership. And um, I, I've seen men and I, I've certainly been at times in my thing where I'm like, you know what? I don't feel I'm at a point right now where I am worthy of the leadership responsibilities that I've been given that does not absolve you of your responsibility to lead. You can feel unworthy all day long. And if you do feel unworthy, then great, go do the things that will make you feel worthy. But it doesn't absolve you of responsibility. You don't get to abdicate the throne. It's yours. You've got to go, you've got to live up to those responsibilities. So instead of looking for an exit strategy, Start looking for the things that you have to do in order to develop to make yourself the sort of leader that when you do have that disagreement with your wife, she can look at it and say, I trust you and, and follow. Do the sort of thing when, when your son is looking up to you and you have to, you have to discipline. They ultimately know that you're doing it because you love them and because you want what's best for them. Be the sort of father when your daughter has to come with you with something that struggled that she doesn't automatically defer to mom she also knows that you're also someone that you can talk to because you will be a source of truth for her when all of her friends and all of her culture is telling her to believe something else. She knows she can go to you because you will speak truth into her life because you love her. And so that, that's the mission. And, and I will tell you again, we, we sometimes talk about it in this language that seems burdensome or, or focused on the responsibility component, and that's certainly important, but... I cannot tell you what an incredible privilege it is, what an honor it is to have your, your wife look at you and say, honey, I don't know about this, but I do know this much. I trust and I love you and, and I will follow. I know what it is. I mean, to, to go through that and have your son say, I understand, dad, I'll do better. To, to, have, to have your daughter want to sit down and have the conversation with you about the boy or about the thing that happened. Um, gosh, man, I, I can't, there, there is, <laughs> there, there is no board title. There's no paycheck that you're ever going to receive that is going to supplant the feeling of, of what that is like when it happens. So, so don't just look at it as a burden, uh, relish it for, for the absolute privilege that it is. Beautiful. I'm so glad that you've got all the content you do because this, I would love to have you for like hours and hours. So thank you <laughs> for all of that. And you know what? I just had my first daughter four months ago. I've been loving the the quick hits on that. So I'm going to, I'm going to link some of these things because the guy's got to see them. So you got, um, you got three boys and a little girl, three boys and a girl. Yeah. Oh dude, be, prepare <laughs> to be wrapped around her little finger, man. I'm, I, oh yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it so much. And there, I already told them the first thing when they came in to see the baby, I'm like, you got to protect her now. And they're oh, just yeah. like, man, it's like a united front. Yeah. Beautiful thing to do to get all three boys involved like that. And uh, man, I just, I still like 
you know, break up and cry when I look at her sometimes. So yeah. uh, praise God for answer to prayer there. Anyway, Nick, thank you so much for this. I very, very much appreciate it. Where can guys go and get more? Because I know they're going to want it. YouTube, podcast, whatever you guys got. Where would you like to send them? Sure. So uh, Nick J. Freitas on, on Instagram is one of our, one of our more popular uh, channels. And then also our, our YouTube page. So you can go to, uh, you just pretty much, you know, just put Nick Freitas in the search engine on YouTube. Uh, we have a podcast that we do there. We do some other projects called um, the Y Minutes and things like that. But one of, one of the, one of the things that we've started to do and we're about to release, I think it's our, I think it's our third video. Um, and we've got some more in the makings, but it, it has to do with things like, hey, three things I learned raising daughters. Uh, I got one that we did on on why it's your responsibility to protect your children. I got another one that we're going to do on things I learned raising a son. Uh, I think we're looking at another one that we're probably going to do here pretty quickly that's going to focus on uh, things I learned being a husband. Um, because we 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 do seem to <laughs> we do seem to get a very good response when we um, when we put out this content, and I and I think it's um, necessary. Um, and it's another reason why I'm very appreciative for what you're doing. Um, because as you kind of mentioned before, you, you, you know, you, you didn't have, um, you didn't have some of the people that were speaking some of this in, into your life. Um, you know, I was fortunate to have a, a lot of that. And the fact that you've not only taken it upon yourself to, to be the husband, to be the father, your, your wife and kids deserve, uh, but you're, you're also letting other men out there know that there's people that we're all struggling with these various things. We all feel these kind of convictions. We all feel this kind of uneasiness and, and there are answers. Uh, there are answers and it, and it is our time to, to step up and lead. Um, and some of us didn't have that modeled for us. Um, but as you said before, um, we might not have had it modeled for us in our individual life, but that doesn't mean it's never been modeled in a way that we can follow it and embrace it. Um, and that's what, again, I think that's what, that's what Christ gives us. So thank you very much for what you're doing. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. And hey, if you uh, run for president, I'll move to the States and uh, be able to vote for you because I will, I will help out. <laughs> all oh, right, God. man. Well, thank you very much for this. And uh, make sure to find out all those links on the show notes, dad.work slash podcast. Catch you next time, guys.